Stop. Listen. Focus. Look at what you've been doing to manage your patients and their pain. Opioids, a 1 to 10 pain scale, patient satisfaction, an opioid epidemic, an overdose epidemic, a medical-driven calamity. But starting now, we are going to do things differently. We are leaning into pain control, the science, the evidence, the art of addressing pain more effectively at the bedside. We are having real conversations. We are going multimodal. We are owning regional analgesia. We are evolving the way we practice. This is the Advanced Analgesia Podcast. Our mission is better, safer, definitive analgesia in the emergency department. Join us. The revolution is just getting started. There isn't an emergency physician practicing today who is unaware of the epidemic of opioid overdose and opioid use disorder impacting the United States today. In the past 20 years, more Americans have died of opioid overdose than perished in combat in World Wars I and II, Korea, Vietnam, and all of the conflicts in the Middle East combined. Opioid overdose remains the leading cause of accidental death for adults under the age of 50 in the U.S., claiming on average 130 lives every day. According to the CDC, opioids were involved in 46,802 overdose deaths in 2018 alone. While officials estimate that approximately 2.1 million adults in the U.S. have opioid use disorder, many experts believe that this number may be substantially higher. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health estimates that in 2018, 3.7% of adults in the U.S. reported misuse of an opioid in the prior year. While overdoses involving a prescription opioid fell nationally by 13% in 2018, the opioid crisis continues at epidemic levels, with deaths involving highly potent synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil now fueling the crisis. Experts predict that the isolation and despair associated with the COVID-19 pandemic will only worsen the opioid epidemic. The economic costs of the opioid epidemic are staggering. The White House Council of Economic Advisors estimates that the full economic burden of the opioid epidemic was $696 billion in 2018 alone, a figure that represents 3.4% of the gross domestic product of the United States. The human costs of the epidemic of opioid use disorder and overdose death are, of course, incalculable. Opioids are essential medications for the management of severe pain related to trauma, burn, sickle cell anemia, and some cancer pain. But the list of both the short and long-term adverse effects of opioids is incredibly long, and our over-reliance on these medications harms our patients and communities. One of the terrible ironies of the current opioid epidemic is that in many cases, opioids fail to control pain well. For all of these reasons, we used to strictly reserve use of opioids to treatment of severe pain, but that all changed in the 1990s. Most of our listeners know how we got here. A well-intentioned movement to treat pain more effectively collided with the greedy and sometimes fraudulent practices of pharmaceutical companies. The studies in the 1980s that supported the misconception that opioids were rarely addictive were laughably thin. Despite this, the American Pain Society, then the Veterans Health Administration, and the Institute of Medicine, and the Joint Commission all contributed to skyrocketing rates of opioid prescribing through the first decades of this millennium. We now know, though we already knew, 
that opioids are highly addictive. Depending on the dose and duration of opioid therapy, many patients will become dependent on opioids. Even three days exposure is associated with a roughly 5% risk of persistent opioid use. A month's prescription will lead to persistent use in a third or more of patients. While there are risk factors that increase the risk of addiction, any opioid-naive patient is at some risk of dependence and addiction when exposed to an opioid. Across all specialties, opioid prescribing increased steadily from 1999 to 2010. It has decreased since 2012, but even with that decrease, the amount of opioids, as measured in morphine milligram equivalents, prescribed per person in 2017 was still three times higher than it was in 1999. Opioid prescribing in the United States is much higher than in other countries. Physicians in the U.S. continue to prescribe nearly four times as many opioids as European physicians do. In 2010, the U.S. consumed approximately 80% of the world's opioid supply, despite constituting less than 5% of the world's population. It's worth remembering that the United States has had opioid epidemics before. Most U.S. drug epidemics over the past 200 years were sparked by pharmaceutical companies and physicians pushing products that eventually proved to be addictive and dangerous. In historical contexts, the development and aggressive marketing of OxyContin in the mid-1990s seems like nothing new, just another spin on a deadly drug. In the 1800s, the drug was opium, usually sold as a liquid in products like laudanum, and given to patients for pain or insomnia. Mary Todd Lincoln, President Lincoln's wife, took it for headaches and became addicted. Around the time of the Civil War, Merck developed morphine, and a generation of soldiers developed what was then called morphinism. In the early 1900s, Bayer developed and marketed heroin pills as an over-the-counter cure for morphine addiction. Eerily like OxyContin today, people soon discovered that crushing and snorting or injecting heroin pills gave a better, quicker high. Cocaine was then developed and sold by Merck to treat morphine addiction. Cocaine is also an excellent decongestant and was briefly endorsed by the American Hay Fever Association. In 1914, Congress passed the Harrison Act, which said cocaine and heroin could only be sold as prescription medications, not over-the-counter and not in consumer products. This drove up prices, but it was really the Great Depression and World War II that ended the cocaine and heroin epidemics of the turn of the century. A look at past epidemics shows that we can't arrest our way out of a drug use epidemic. While stemming the supply of drugs like heroin, fentanyl, and other powerful synthetic opioids is vital, arresting users and low-level dealers does little to help. What we can do is prevent new addictions, treat people with existing addiction, and prevent overdose death. Emergency physicians are ideally positioned to act in all three of these areas. ED docs can prevent new addiction by curtailing inappropriate ordering and prescription of opioids. Advanced analgesia focuses on preventing patient exposures to opioids in the first place and protecting our communities by shrinking the pool of unused opioids in medicine cabinets across the country. In many cases, better ED analgesia allows us to treat pain without using any opioid or using minimal doses only for breakthrough pain. The good news is that by using advanced multimodal analgesia, we can do this and treat pain more effectively. By consistent use of multimodal analgesia and by advancing our capabilities in regional analgesia and anesthesia, we can provide better, safer care. While rates of opioid overdose death have declined somewhat in Wyoming over the last few years, they remain unacceptably high. In 2014, there were 40 drug overdose deaths involving opioids. Prescription opioid-related deaths remained stable at 28 in 2018. 
While ED physicians have been at the forefront of efforts to limit inappropriate opioid prescribing, across all specialties, Wyoming providers continue to exceed the national average, writing 57.1 opioid prescriptions for every 100 persons, compared to the U.S. average of 51.4 prescriptions. Wyoming was spared the high rates of opioid addiction and overdose death associated with the loss of industry and job loss seen in Appalachia, in West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, for example, as many who lost jobs in the energy sector simply left the state. Wyoming has also been proactive in its efforts to ensure wide access to naloxone, including legislation that allows pharmacists to prescribe the overdose reversal agent. That said, some experts believe that the picture of opioid overdose seen in official data in Wyoming may not be accurate. They speculate that the stigma surrounding addiction leads many families and coroners to misreport official cause of death. Wyoming must unite to fight the opioid epidemic, committing to prevent and treat opioid use disorder and overdose death. Physicians of all specialties across Wyoming must unite to fight the opioid epidemic, committing themselves to preventing and treating opioid use disorder and overdose death. The promising news is that by using multimodal analgesia, clinicians can treat pain both more safely and more effectively. Advanced Analgesia in the Emergency Department is a novel program committed to revolutionizing pain control in the ED. Dr. Don Stater founded the Advanced Analgesia program. Welcome, Dr. Stater. Please tell us about this exciting new program. Yeah, thank you so much, Elizabeth. And it's really exciting to share this innovation with really the whole practice. I think that we in the emergency department have a chance to do pain control better than ever before. And we're talking better, safer, more scientifically based, and definitive pain control for our patients. And when you think about just the ubiquity of pain, seven out of every 10 ED patients is there with a painful condition. This has a chance to touch so much many of the patients we see and to really improve our practice. Fascinating and very interesting. Give us the bird's eye view, the overview. What are some of the key components of this new initiative? So really, I I, I conceptualize this as having three pillars, the first of which is communication. We have to relearn how to communicate with patients and set expectations about pain what pain is, and what tolerable pain is. We have to stop this kind of, you know, being on this hamster wheel of just saying pain is the enemy, and our goal is to have pain be a zero out of 10. That's wrong-minded, and has really been one of the causes of the opioid epidemic. The second pillar after communication is multimodal analgesia, and, and what's often referred to as ALTO, or alternatives to opioids. We have to have a full command and breadth of all the different medications at our fingertips to control pain and to recognize and apply the correct medicine to the correct painful condition. And that's going to take a relearning of how to apply medications in our patients. And the third pillar, and to me really the most exciting, is we have to be experts in regional analgesia. This can no longer be something that's just done by anesthesiologist. This belongs definitively in the ER for the benefit of our patients. We have the skills, we can easily get the tools, And we have to develop that fund of knowledge in order to do this and also develop the research that shows that this helps improve and change lives. What happened to the term ALTO? For those listeners not familiar with it, alternatives to opioids. We're moving away from that now. Yeah. So ALTO, you know, was, I think, a very natural term when we started this revolution. And my very good friend, Alexis and Mark Rosenberg, of course, developed the nation's first ALTO program, uh, which was erroneously called uh, Opioid-Free ED, 
right? Uh, so we went from opioid-free ED to know we're just using alternatives to opioids. And now we have advanced analgesia. And here's kind of the concept behind it, is we don't want to define what we're trying to do by what we're not, right? It's not about just using alternatives to opioids, almost putting them at the same level. It's about providing advanced pain control, advanced analgesia in the emergency department. This is so much better than just not using opioids. This is really the future of pain control, the future of providing patients maximal safe relief for every painful condition that they might face. And to me, it's a term that captures that aspiration, that really when patients come to the ED, they should expect physicians who are experts in pain control managing their pain while we diagnose whatever might be the etiology of it. So so again, it's it's an evolution, right? And, and to me, we're at the stage where it's time to put down what we're not, alto, and just defining ourselves by alternatives to opioids and really move into that space where we're defining ourselves by what we want to provide, advanced analgesia. And I want to support you in moving on, but I also want to review why we want to avoid opioids. I think so many of our listeners are very familiar with the history I've already described and the the tragedy that is the current opioid epidemic. But can you give us just a reminder of all of the short-term and long-term adverse effects of opioids. Yeah. So here's what I'd say is the more you look into opioids as a drug, the more you're not going to want to use them in your practice. And that's for two reasons. We'll we'll, we'll divide it between short-term and long-term. Short-term, every time you give an opioid, you have a 50 to 80% chance of an adverse reaction, be that nausea, be that somnolence, be that constipation, right? So more than one out of every two patients you give a drug to is going to develop something as a result of that drug. That's already a number needed to harm of, you know, one out of every two. It's impressive. So, so we start out as a, as a place of, you know, of very poor outcome. The other thing is when you compound it on the risk long-term of opioids, there's all these other factors that come into play. And there's a risk, of course, of addiction or opioid use disorder, the more appropriate term. Uh, There's a risk of overdose when patients either misuse these or have them in their medicine cabinets and their children get into them. And then there's all the physiologic changes that happen with an opioid that I think sometimes we don't recognize. People on long-term opioids have immunosuppression. They get pneumonias and infections, much greater percentage than, than other people in the population risk of osteoporosis, a risk of bone malunion or non-union when you use it to control fracture pain. The most recent one that that gave me a chuckle is a risk of deafness, right? People who are using opioids long-term have an increased chance of losing their hearing. And and the list goes on from there. And and lastly, I I should say the greatest irony is the risk of opioid-induced hyperesthesia. The same medication that we think is so good for pain lowers pain thresholds and so often results in more pain long-term. So so at the end of the day, I'd say it's a really dangerous drug and not the first thing I ever reach for when it comes to providing advanced analgesia to my patients. And I think many of our listeners know these facts intellectually, but in both the wider culture and in clinicians, the idea that opioids are the gold standard for pain control has a grip that's really hard to shake. And the harms are there. Say more to us about the efficacy you know, the harms are evident. Opioids work for, you know, major trauma, severe burns. There are some indications, but tell us about where that line is. When is it legitimate to use an opioid and what do they not work for? 
Yeah. So, so let's start with the not work for, because I think that's the, the easier list. And then we can get into the more concept thoughts about severe types of pain and, and the utility of opioids in those conditions. You should not be using opioids for mild to moderate short-term pain. We still give way too many opioids out for ankle sprains and tooth pain. And that is just, you know, dumb. <laughs> Frankly, dumb. The, the risk-benefit ratio is way on the, on the risk side for that. Then there's other conditions where, as we mentioned, that opioid sensitization that happens, that central sensitization to pain, is made so much worse when you give patients with low back pain an opioid, or with migraine headache an opioid, or chronic vomiting syndromes like cyclic vomiting or cannabis hyperemesis. There's a litany of medical conditions where an opioid might help you win the battle, but it's going to make the patient lose the war. They're going to have so much worse outcomes because you decided to hit the Staples easy button rather than putting them on evidence-based care. So, So that's one of the biggest potholes we step in when it comes to opioid usage. Now, that being said, advanced analgesia doesn't say this is a no opioid program. Opioids have a place in clinical practice. I use opioids in the emergency department when I work. Now, you'll notice I didn't say I use opioids frequently when I work because I use them occasionally and rarely. That's where my practice has evolved into. But when I do use them, it's usually temporizing. If a person comes in and they have a tremendous, let's say, trauma, they, they have a femur fracture, their femur's sticking out of their leg, am I going to get upset because our medics gave 200 fentanyl or because I'm going to use some fentanyl in the emergency department to kind of temporize their pain? Absolutely not. But in 2020, with advanced analgesia, the next step is just to eliminate that pain. I'm going to go in and do a nerve block in the first 20 minutes the patient's in the ED. And they're going to go off to their CT not feeling that femur fracture, feeling complete relief of pain. That's what the future looks like for us if we apply this and apply this correctly. Now, now let's take more complex cases. Let's say you have either a patient who has, you know, 70% body surface area burns. Opioids are appropriate. To put that person who's going to be likely intubated in the ICU on a fentanyl drip, I think is very appropriate care. I think also they'd benefit greatly from a ketamine drip in many cases, which I oftentimes will use in complex polypharma, polytraumas, and in, uh, in complex burns. But those are very appropriate utilizations. And again, what you'll see is at the extremes, you know, those extreme pain conditions, I do think opioids are appropriate. What would you say to our listener who is silently thinking, I've been prescribing opioids for 30 years now. My patients don't have any problems. We've swung too far the opposite direction. Opioids are a useful medication. I would say to them that we used to bleed people for decades and centuries and think we were doing great medicine right? Uh, polycythemia vera was a great thing. We still bleed people for some conditions, right? But but the, the treatment of sepsis is no longer, let's let some blood out. And for, for that, I really think that opioids have a really limited course of action. Now, for those people who say, well, you know, I, we've swung the pendulum too far. I'd say the argument with that is that you haven't learned how to provide really great analgesia without opioids. You're right. A patient should never suffer because you're not willing to give them medication. But if you're using that as a rationalization to suddenly say, well, I'm just going to hit the opioid button again because the pendulum is swinging too far, I'd say that for you, that pendulum has not swung far enough and that there's an entire world out there 
of multimodal analgesia and regional analgesia that you have to learn about to provide 2020 and beyond care. And that's where this is moving to. That's the direction is we've had, and you've gone through this in the in the history, we've had multiple opioid epidemics. And we've oftentimes tried to cure them by just not treating pain and telling people to tough it out. This one has to be different. We have to go into a future where we invent new ways to treat pain better than ever before and definitively prevent ourselves in medicine from not having another opioid epidemic because we innovated and we thought our way out of it. And that's what advanced analgesia is all about. And we thought about pain and that pain isn't just a monolithic thing. There are many types of pain and drilling down on the many different types of pain, which really isn't often taught adequately in medical school or residency. Could you speak to us of pain, Don? <laughs> yeah, so so pain is very complex, you know, and I think that that's the first thing is just to acknowledge the complexity. Uh, and there's a few ways, you know, that I think when you're learning about pain to easily conceptualize it. The first is the biopsychosocial model, which while it's been a little bit outdated, I still think is really helpful in helping attach conceptualizations about pain and how you should think about pain. The first is just biology, right? Where we all have different biology when it comes to sensing pain. Some people have a higher pain threshold, lower pain threshold than others, and that's just how you're wired. But then within every patient's biology, there's different types of pain. And there's a difference between inflammatory pain from gout, from neuropathic pain, from diabetes, from spasmodic pain, from a kidney stone or intestinal spasm, from pain that's mostly psychogenic, you know, which, which happens with extreme emotion, right? All those are different types of pain. And what you have to do at the bedside is make yourself an expert at identifying those different types of pain, recognizing them, and then applying the correct medication to them in a multimodal way. And with that, with that desire and that, that will to be a bedside scientist and clinician, you can get much better, safer pain control for your patients. The final things I'll say is, so we went over biology. There's a total psychology to pain. And this is why communication is so important. Pain is something that you have, right? You can go through the, the peripheral neurology to the spinal cord, to the sensation in the brain, et cetera. But one of the most powerful ways we modulate pain is through the psychology that we apply to it. And for years, we've taught people to apply the psychology that you should aim for a pain score of zero, that pain is unacceptable, that pain is unnatural. And we've set ourselves up for failure when really we should be talking to patients about, hey, this pain, if you have a fractured bone, is natural. It's something that we're going to try to make more tolerable, but that I want you to, you know, get in the mind frame of you're going to have to tolerate and live with some pain. And then finally, to recast pain as the cycle, as the physiologic thing that it was in the past, which is pain is a guide. If you have a fractured bone, we don't want to dope you up so much that you're going to start trying to use your arm or use your broken legs and walk around on it. We want, we want to get your pain tolerable, but we still want the pain to be there because that pain is going to remind you that you need to rest, that you need to recuperate, that you need to heal. Uh, so, so in many ways, pain as guide is, is one of the you know, concrete things that we teach in advanced analgesia. The, the final piece, you know, so we talk about the bio, we talk about the, the psycho, and we talk about the social aspects of pain because pain really does have a lot of its components that are influenced by your fishbowl, right? by how your family is talking to you about pain, by how stressful everything is in your life, by how much, you know, emotional reserve that you have to tolerate a painful condition. And, and recognizing sometimes some of those social drivers of pain is very important to addressing pain and, and, and something that we should embrace in the emergency department. This isn't hard. It's also, it sounds like a lot, by the way, but it's not. 
It's actually, once you learn to recognize these things, very easy to do at the bedside. Talk more, please, about that at the bedside dynamic, because I think, you know, it's a complex relationship between physician and patient in pain. And there are times when that patient in pain will bring up stuff for you as a clinician, including annoyance, frustration, a sense of futility. Give us some more insights into, you know, how to manage those difficult pain-related interactions with patients. Yeah. So, So the first thing I'd say is compassion, right? Having that ability to empathize, to, to listen intently and fully is so important to establishing a therapeutic relationship for good pain control. Uh, and I'll bring up the case of my daughter, right? Uh, I've got a three-year-old who's just a banshee. She's like her mother. She wants to climb and jump off absolutely everything. She gets boo-boos all the time. And she's crying all the time and coming to me and my wife. And really beyond what she wants is she wants to be held and she wants to be reassured and she wants to be comforted. We want to get into that psychological space where she feels cared for and she feels that she's in a trusting relationship, right? And, And that's the first thing I try to establish with patients is when I'm at the bedside, I want them to know that I care and I care deeply. Now, once they see that you're that you care, the next step is to lean in. Um, it was so, so far before, and and I remember this this saying from a really charismatic senior resident when I was an intern, is he used to tell patients, "We've got more pain meds than you got pain," and he would just narc them out. And and at the time, we thought we were providing really great medicine, by the way, and so did I. I I, I took that on as my practice early in the career and used that same catchphrase that he did. Um, now I know that's categorically wrong. Right? But so I do lean into pain. When patients say I'm in extreme pain, I, I identify what type of pain and I come up with a plan with them at the bedside. So the patient is an active participant. And and here's kind of a dialogue. And and, and uh, Elizabeth, would you play patient? Of course, I would love to play the patient. Okay, great, great. Uh, so, so you start out with your painful condition or whatever. Doctor, my shoulder, I can't sleep. It's it just killing me. I need something. I need some help. I need okay. help. Okay, so... Right there, she's opted in for pain control. Let's say that she did not. Let's say it's abdominal pain. And she says, oh, my pain, I, I've hurt really bad right here. The first question I use to begin with in a patient who hasn't already opted in is I ask them, would you like anything for pain? But, but the first thing is, do you want anything for pain? You'll be amazed by how many patients opt out of pain control just because they want to know what's going on with them. They're not there for pain control. They're there for an answer to what's causing their pain. And I'll dive into that a little later. But for those patients, I know that they're actually pain tolerant, right? Their psychology is such that they have a natural view of pain. Pain is maybe a natural component of, of, their, of what they think, uh, you know, they're, they're able to tolerate. Now for you, you know, you said, okay, well, I've got this tremendous shoulder pain. I'm here because I need help. help. One, of, one of my first questions is, okay, hey, we're here to help. Let me ask you a question, though. Did you drive to the emergency department or not? I drove, but it was not easy. Okay. Are you planning on driving home? I, I hope to drive home, but I can't go on in this kind of pain. For sure. For sure. So, so right there is another important dichotomy in my pain control. If a patient drives home, I do not want to give them anything that's going to hinder their ability to drive home, right? So, so already opioids, antipsychotics, sedative agents are off the menu for me. And I partner with them and I say, okay, so if you want to drive home, I'm going to start out with a cocktail of medications. That does not inhibit your ability to drive yourself home. And I think we can get there, by the way. So again, boom, I've established my next, my next branch. They're, they're driving themselves home. I don't want to make it unsafe for them to drive home. And, and again, the patient's usually like, oh, thank you for thinking about that, right? Because it would be a hell for me to try to wake up my husband at three in the morning to come pick me up. 
right? Or to wait here for four hours, you know, while, while we're waiting for medications to wear off. And plus, that just clogs up your ER. Okay, so, so you want to drive yourself home. And also, I just noticed you use we language. You, from the mm-hmm. get-go, are establishing that this is a collaborative effort. We're going to help, you know, we're going to do this together. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the same dinghy as you, as the patient, right? And, and, and afterwards, then I'll dive into the pain. I'll move the shoulder around. I'll find out how long it's been there. I'll try to categorize whether this is inflammatory type pain, neuropathic type pain, chronic pain, acute muscular pain, right? All these different types of pain things because they're going to define how I treat them. So so let's say, well, what is it? What, what type of pain do you have? How long have you had it for? You know, it's been a couple of days. It's just getting worse and worse. It's hard to pinpoint. Yeah, I don't know what to do. I can't pick up my kids. I can't really do the dishes. It's not, I can't, I can't really live my life with this. Yeah. So, so again, that's acute pain. And for the shoulder, you have to think inflammatory, right? It's not, usually not neuropathic. So an inflammatory type pain in a young lady who's got kids, who's picking them up, it's likely an overuse injury, right? So these things are, are processing in my mind. And then now I'm going to apply the tools that I have. I'm going to examine you and I'm going to push all over that shoulder, right? I'm going to find out if you have pain in the biceps tendon or if you have, you know, uh, a rotator cuff injury or if it's actually joint pain where it's deep, deep in the joint, right? And for you, you know, what type of pain is that when I examine you, let's say I go through everything? You know, it's... it's- it's definitely when you move it around, like it, it really feels like it's a joint. Okay, it's great. A joint thing. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so so I, I evaluate the patient. Oh my gosh, she's got an inflamed shoulder joint, right? And I, and I know it's her shoulder joint. Hey, guess what I'm going to do as an advanced analgesia practitioner? I'm going to inject your joint. I'm going to get some Marcaine. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a steroid, like Kenalog, and you're going to get a joint injection. I don't like needles. Isn't that going to hurt? So it will hurt, but if you really want relief of the pain, I hope that you're willing to tolerate literally 20 seconds of a painful thing to get days or weeks of relief. Are you willing to do that by chance? You promised days or weeks? You know, in most cases, I've had those results. Nothing certain, right? I can't, I can't promise anything. But at least in my clinical experience, this is this is the best treatment for your for your condition. Yeah, I'm willing to give it a try. Okay, great. So, boom, right? You went from what partnering with the patient, forming a collaborative relationship. You apply your clinical knowledge to figure out what the hell type of pain that patient has. And then really in advanced analgesia philosophy, here's another, here's another key thing. If you can pinpoint a certain area that hurts, a certain joint, a certain muscle, a certain bone, you want to find an excuse to put a needle in it and numb it up, right? That's going to get the best definitive pain control in the emergency department that you can possibly get. And that's another thing about advanced analgesia is, you know, when people ask me to describe it, one of the words I use that surprises people is kinetic. It's a pain process of movement, right? And I don't mean like kinetic where you're typing, you're typing an order for your nurse to give. I mean, get your ass in there, pull up some meds, identify where the pain is and take care of it. And it makes such inherent sense to the patient. Oh, I hurt right here in my back dock and you're going to inject there? Or, oh my gosh, I, I fractured my ankle and you're going to inject right there where my, all my pain is? From a psychological standpoint, that patient knows that you give a crap and that you're caring for them. And plus... It's just most effective. You know, you're not going to have these rounds and rounds where you're giving medicines and they're not getting better. Then you're going back in and they're not getting better. And then you're finally, you're throwing your hands up and saying, well, I should just give them some Dilaudid. That doesn't happen with it. And you improve your length of stay time, patient satisfaction, and uh, and decrease your, your opioid usage. Plus, a lot of these procedures, right, you're actually incentivized to do the right thing. You can bill for them. You can increase your, the patient's well-being and and also your own financial well-being. So, so double positive there. Make your pain control kinetic.
And we'll have a whole episode of this podcast taking a deep dive into the regional analgesia that clinicians can use. I am so curious about just these interactions with patients. And I particularly wonder about, you have infant twins and a three-year-old. When you're working your third 24-hour shift in Craig and you're running on fumes, where do you find that empathy? Oh, that's a great question. So I think burnout's a true issue in emergency medicine, right? And I think, first of all, is just acknowledging that there's going to be days that I'm not at my best, you know, that I'm going to be tired, that I'm going to be angry about one other thing, that I'm going to be stressed the hell out, right? And really what I try to resolve to do is not to bring that to the bedside. And it's a very active meditation about not bringing that to the bedside. And, and uh, you know, I, I tell friends this, like every time I go into a shift, I, I basically say the things to myself again and again, you're here to help people. You have this opportunity and this blessing that you've been training your whole career to do or your whole life to do, which is to apply your compassion and your skill at the bedside, right? So I actively remind myself why I'm there. And, and in those low points too, it, it takes more reminding, right? And, and at the end of the day, I try not to let my personal life affect how I care for patients at the bedside. And, and to be honest, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And patients are cared for and they're thankful. And you have a good relationship. It lifts your spirits. It reminds you why you're, why you're there, right? It's, it's, it's really food for the soul in itself. So being able to efficiently establish human relationships and connection with your patients is going to help you feel less burned out. And I think when you have more in your toolkit and you're a more effective physician, those relationships have to be much easier. When you're walking in with a lot to offer, it's a better place to be. Yeah. So, so one of the biggest sources of burnout is a feeling that you're helpless or you don't have anything you can do. Right. And, and I think back, you know, to probably when you were an endocrinologist before insulin was invented, you probably had the worst job in the world, right? Because you were just watching young people die of type 1 diabetes. Or if you were an infectious disease doctor in the midst of the HIV epidemic, it was probably one of the worst careers you could have had in medicine because you were just watching people die and, and you're helpless to do anything about it. And for us, I, I, I draw an analogy to opioid use disorder, where before we started using buprenorphine and things that actually work for opioid use disorder, all we were doing is arguing with patients, not providing them any evidence based care and watching people die. And for every type of painful condition that you can think of under the friggin' sun, I guarantee you that I have things that I can offer that patient, things that are effective, evidence-based, things that work, things that make the patient thankful that they came into the ED no matter what time. And, and applying those is a pleasure. It's a joy. And, and, and that's what advanced analgesia gives you. And that is what our next episodes are going to give you, too. In our second episode, we'll have pharmacist Rachel Duncan joining Don to take a really deep dive into the pharmacologic agents you can add to your toolkit to provide your patients the best multimodal analgesia out there. And then in our third episode, we'll have Don joined by Ron Reardon to discuss the role of regional analgesia and anesthesia in ED practice and really talk about many of the blocks that are so valuable in practice. And in our fourth episode, Don will be back to tackle some common and challenging cases you may see in the emergency department. Thanks for listening.